Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can find a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. That's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness, meditation, and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Today I'm so very honored to have as my guest Rhonda McGee. Rhonda is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco. She is also trained in sociology and mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR. She is a highly practiced facilitator of trauma-sensitive, restorative MBSR interventions for lawyers and law students, and for minimizing the effects of social identity-based bias. She is the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Stay tuned as we're going to learn a lot more about Rhonda here on today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is lawyer, author, and mindfulness expert, Rhonda McGee. Welcome to the show, Rhonda. Thank you so much. It's it's a joy to be with you, John. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're incredibly busy, so I'm honored that you've taken some time out of your schedule, your uh, your busy schedule, to be on the call with me today. And and as we mentioned right before I hit record, you, know, you actually grew up across the water from where I'm sitting. I sit here in Norfolk, Virginia, for, for now anyway, in the few weeks my wife and I and my little kids are going to be jumping in the RV and doing a, a round-the-country trip for several months. But right now, I'm sitting in Norfolk, Virginia. Wow. You grew up across the water in Hampton. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your your childhood and, and growing up over there? Ah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's good to have a chance to reflect with you about this, John, and to know that you're sitting right there in Norfolk. That's um, right. Yeah. So... Let's see, I, I moved, we moved, I often say up north from uh, North Carolina to Virginia. <laughs> when I was just about six. Um, and so I spent um, all the years from six till, until I finished um, my formal education at the University of, of Virginia um, in Virginia and living in Hampton for, yeah, growing up there, going to school there through high school at Phoebus High School, actually. 
um, public school with, um, you know, the benefit of, of some teachers that I still consider to have been very influential in the arc of the journey from there to here for me. Um, but I, I was there, my, I'm, we were there, we had moved there uh, partly because my mother had married, remarried, um, and so my stepfather was a retired um, staff sergeant in the Air Force. And he had spent time at Langley uh, Air Force Base there in Hampton. And that was his favorite place of all the places he had been stationed. So he had decided when he retired, he wanted to retire there. And so that is how we ended up in Hampton. Um, and it was, um, you know, for me, I now look back and realize how much that formed in me a love of um, a certain kind of groundedness in um, community, um, communities not too far from the water, ideally, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> um, but as, and at the same time, you know, it has a lot of, of all of American history, you know, in a nutshell in that region. And so um, that being growing up in Hampton, having been born in North Carolina, coming up um, through the 70s um, and 80s as I was, you know, coming of age, um, you know, that was a particular period as well in our American cultural history. Um, one in which, as you know, John, we were in various ways, um, kind of working through the post-civil rights um, agenda as it appeared to be at that time, um, which meant for me, uh, you know, going to school in integrated settings um, increasingly over those years. Actually, my kindergarten in North Carolina was still segregated. It had not been desegregated, though it was 1972. Um, you know, Brown versus Board had not quite arrived there. So know this history, right? It's not, you know, it's, it seems as if it's farther back in our past than it really is. But yeah, for me, by the time I went to Virginia, we were integrating. And, you know, on a certain, in a certain sense, it seemed as if we had come quite a long ways. And at the same time, as I discuss in, the, in my book, the legacies of our history are still always with us. And I think um, part of my work has been about, you know, first, frankly, for my own self, deepening my ability to be, you know, just fully alive and um, not shy away from difficult things. Um, and in the one area of that for me has been about, um, you know, really deepening a capacity and a stamina for Looking, looking at and being with the difficulty that that history, that those legacies and others, other difficulties that appear in our social realm um, present for each of us. And so mindfulness for me has been certainly a place for practicing around those aspects of being alive. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Now I have to admit that uh, I haven't fully read your book. I've started it um, and even just the first few chapters have been very eye-opening and, and quite honestly, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed in the way that I, I noticed that I think about things that you have made me aware of uh, through reading your book. Um, 
uh, and I'm sure that it will be eye-opening to anyone, but as, as a white male, it's, it's been pr particularly eye-opening. Um, that said, I hope that this conversation is going to be eye-opening to the listeners um, and, and any well, who may, anyone who may be viewing it on YouTube. Um, and that I hope to have a conversation around that and how racism and mindfulness uh, or racial justice, uh, that, that they're all kind of tied together. Um, for our listeners, I wanted to lay the foundation. How did you get into the world of mindfulness first? And then I want to get into how that's tied to racial justice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for asking. Um, you know, when I think about that question, it, um, I, I often answer it, like different answers seem to come up. Um, you know, there's a kind of a very straightforward answer, which is that um, sometime in the, uh, well, first of all, right after I graduated law school and came to San Francisco um, to start my first law job, which I was fortunate to have at a law firm in San Francisco, um, there was that period after taking the bar, you know, before you get the results, but when you have a job that's due to start a couple months away, where a lot of people, they take trips, they re relax, they, you know, they know they've finished one big phase of life, they have another big phase to start. I realized during that brief period that I had trouble relaxing. You know, I mean, I had been studying and studying and working for so many years. And um, as you know, part of that included a period of training as an army officer, it included graduate school in sociology and law, um, just and and you know really devoting myself to just making the most of the opportunities that I had, which as you know I alluded to before, you know people like me and generations before had not had. Right. So I was really, um, really kind of um, I guess struggling to rest and relax a little bit um, during that period where I was really given permission by everyone. There was everywhere around me. All my friends were taking these kinds of breaks. They were going away. They were resting. And I just um, really had trouble with that. And it was because of that that some part of me started to remember, actually, that, um, you know, I'd, I'd witnessed people in my life who had difficult and challenging work to do, but who found a way to ground themselves and center themselves. In particular, I'm thinking of my own grandmother. So although my grandmother wasn't practicing what any of us would call mindfulness, right? She was um, coming from a Christian background and a deep Christian faith and a kind of devotional practice and a discipline around that, that is not the same as mindfulness. I, I guess I want to be clear about that. And at the same time, it had something in common. Mm. It had in common the commitment to practice. It had in common the kind of faith that even, you know, sometimes we don't talk about the faith that you bring to mindfulness, but, you know, this idea that I might not feel like sitting today, but let me just sit because I've made a commitment to practice. Every day, my grandmother, before dawn, would just get up and, and engage in these devotions. I don't know. We never had these conversations, but I'm, I feel quite certain there were days that she didn't, quote unquote, feel like doing that. But, but really came to just rest in the sense that this will be a benefit. And so when, you know, when I found myself in that period in my own life where I was struggling to find a sense of ground, that the image of centering was one that was coming up for me and a daily practice for that. 
I was, however, kind of at that time looking for and exploring different ways of expressing that impulse. So I was drawn to um, exploring uh, different types of traditions and started actually reading Hindu-based guides on meditation um, that happened to be in my apartment at the time, my partner at that time, and now same same fellow, <laughs> um, had a book on the shelf called the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita for Daily Living, which actually is a you know, a translation of a really important, beautiful Hindu text. But part of that translation, and it was done by a, uh, a man who had come to Berkeley, actually, California, from India, and felt called to translate and provide teachings to, you know, people in this context. So he beautifully was discussing how meditation practice was um, a core support for um, a wiser way of being with the challenges of our time and our lives. And so that was actually the, the first kind of um, introduction to meditation for me. And it was from there exploring that and exploring other forms that I ultimately found um, mindfulness-based meditation uh, and joined a community of practice led by Norman Fisher, who is a former Buddhist abbot of the San Francisco uh, Zen Center. He's still a Buddhist teacher, um, but not so much affiliated with the Zen Center in that formal sense. But he's still um, leading a little sangha here in the Bay Area that I'm a part of for lawyers and folks in law. And so it was after joining with Norman that I really deepened into um, the com commitments I now have for studying and um, practicing and offering teaching as best I can. Um, mindfulness-based strategies for for living and for thriving. Nice. Now, your uh, as a teacher, when did when did you actually start um, introducing others to mindfulness, and, and how did you go about taking those first steps into introducing mindfulness to others? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. I think it's a little unusual in the sense that you know. So this was back in two thousand about four that I found Norman Fisher and this community of this Sangha or community of practice um, here in the Bay Area. It was, it's, it was then and it still is, it has always been a relatively small community, kind of a curated community in a certain sense of um, a few, some lawyers, judges, law professors, and Norman, no more than 12 or so of us. And, um, but you know, we been meeting, they were already meeting once a month or so, and practicing in the meantime, and coming back together to deepen our practices together. And this, so this, so I joined them, and this went on, you know, for several years that way. And then at a certain point, um, you know, Norma's teaching and offering, and we're learning and we're practicing. And um, at a certain point, uh, you know, uh, well, all of that was about practicing for this community of lawyers. And so it was always, um, I should say, Norman has this um, group called Everyday Zen now, or his foundation, his work is based on the idea of offering the practices of mindfulness in non-sectarian, you know, for daily life. Mm -hmm. And so that explains, I think, why he was committed to us, this group of lawyers. And it also 
might begin to suggest how it is that, you know, through that work, Norman certainly started to just sort of um, suggest to us or listen for what was coming up within our community around how we might offer support to others based on what we are learning. And so it started with uh, that group thinking together about what we could do. And I'd like to point that out because, you know, we have the very kind of solitary, individualized hero models in our culture <laughs> of the lone person who just goes out and does not say whatever. Yeah, and the strong and quiet. <laughs> What's that, John? The, the strong and quiet type or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, I have, there's a part of that. I could tell that story that way. But I. <laughs> This story is about, you know, me and community and this community of practice inspiring in all of us a sense that, you know, we could offer what we are learning. And, and, um, and we, so we together explored what that might be like. And we ended up doing, continuing to do, they had already begun and I joined in um, offering retreats for lawyers and um, deepening our, each of our, each member's sense of our ability to not just, but to actually offer teachings as part of the retreats. And from there, we continue to think about ways we might bring it into the practice of law for those of us who are practicing, the teaching of law for those of us who are teaching, um, how we handled cases on the bench for those who are judges. And so it was like that, like, you know, Norman basically saying, um, you know, we, you don't necessarily have to think of yourselves as um, Buddhist teachers, but you, you are, you have been learning. I have seen you develop into a, an ability to um, live the teachings of mindfulness. And from that place, you might be able to offer something of benefit to some folks. Right. That's how we started. And for me, yes, it was starting, started with giving a talk at one of those retreats and then um, giving um, presentations um, at, my, at various you know, places at my law school, offering support for my students um, in that context, and um, ultimately deciding to develop a course that would allow me to offer meditation to students and my students would be able to get, would be able to get law school credit for it. And so I co-developed this course, was teaching this course on mindfulness for lawyers and um, found mindfulness-based stress reduction and actually met John Kabat-Zinn in the course of, um, you know, describing this course offering and that being discovered somehow by folks who are promoting mindfulness stuff. And so I got introduced as like, John Kevin Zinn is bringing mindfulness to, to medicine and Rhonda is you know, bringing mindfulness into law. It's like, <laughs> we're not you know, on the same, <laughs> you know, so, and this was like about 2010 or 11. So I had been teaching that course, course at my law school for two years or so. And um, been practicing, obviously, in that more formal sense uh, since 2003 or four. So a baby in the work. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> and I, I'm, uh, I've got a, my three-year-old. Um, she, she always asks, because we have a one-year-old as well, and she always asks, am I grown up? Because he's a baby. 
when I thought, well, no, not exactly. You're, you're medium and uh, he's, he's baby. And, and then when she sees like a five or a six year old, she says, well, are they more medium than I am? So uh, I think I'm I'm the baby in this conversation. Uh, John Cabotin is more medium than the two of us. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love her more medium. <laughs> she's she's uh she's sharp as a tack, I tell you. Uh, so sorry, I I get sidetracked when I start talking about my little ones. No. Uh, so sorry. yeah, I, I know John Cabotin also wrote the intro to your book, and and uh, he also seems to have been enlightened by what it is you're teaching in regards to bringing mindfulness, not exclusively into the law world, but into the social justice uh, side, the racial justice. Um, can, I wanna start with your definition of justice, just the word justice by itself. Can you share that with, with, uh, with my listeners and then how mindfulness helped you to, I guess, come up with that? Yeah. So I lean into definitions that have been um, shared by, you know, people that I consider our teachers, right? I think we as humans have inherited so much from people who have come before. Um, so whether formally or informal, informally, we have so many teachers out there. And um, Martin Luther King Jr. is one for me. Cornell West is another one. I think about how I tend to, you know, operationalize and define and, and operationalize this notion of justice. It's love infused, first of all, right? To me, um, you know, so there are these technical ways to think about justice. I'm a law professor, right. <laughs> jurisprudential, philosophical, right? There are all kinds of different approaches to what we mean by justice. So I right. uh, give myself permission to enter into that conversation, leaning into the, you know, the, the thinking and teachings of folks like those gentlemen I named and others who center on this idea of justice as being a kind of approximation for what love looks like in public. So we're not talking about the hallmark type of two against the world kind of love. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about this kind of, you know, that, that, that energy of compassionate, um, uh, you know, sort of that sense of um, our caring for ourselves and others that I think for me and for many of us who um, may teach mindfulness or other kind of forms of spiritual, maybe even religious uh, practices and approaches, you know, there's a it's common ground that seems to be about being aware, profoundly aware of the grace of being alive, you know, the gift of being alive, this miracle that we didn't ourselves in our, at least not consciously, summon forth or create, right? It's just, we, you know, as the existential philosophers say, we were just thrown into the world, literally right uh waking up to life through let's say one woman each of us that are here one woman with the support of one man right so always inherently radically embedded in community connectedness that we didn't create 
And there's a certain kind of humility that comes from that and a certain kind of um, call to honor that, that I think is at the core of what I think of as justice. So for me, um, you know, Cornel West uses the phrase justice is what love looks like in public. Martin Luther King talks about justice as um, uh, power correcting that which stands against love. Right. So yeah. you know, we could elaborate, but basically the idea is that interface between the, what we feel ethically called to, to sort of do be and, and amplify in response to the grace of being alive, which is for me about minimizing suffering for others, starting with myself. But, um, you know, the first approximation to what love looks like in public to me or what justice is about is, you know, minimizing suffering. And we then can talk about what suffering is. But, um, you know, so justice may be that kind of public facing, policy based, socially engaged um, set of structures and institutions, you might say, through which ideally we are seeking to minimize suffering in our midst. Nice, nice. So then you, you went on in your book, you define justice and then you talk about racial justice and then even further social justice. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, yeah, so as we think about what love looks like in public, um, it inevitably gets us thinking about our social identities. In other words, you know, whatever we call that public, it's, you know, there's this idea of a demarcation or, you know, that we have a private sense of self and then we go out in the world. Um, and so something about, you know, I'm, I'm it consciously, I want to name that I, for me, talking about things like this is, uh, it's always a challenge because we're using words that were not necessarily, you know, we didn't create them, but thank goodness we have them to communicate together. And so the words are not precisely necessarily capturing what it is I'm trying to say. So I appreciate the giving of the benefit of the doubt that comes always in communication with another human being. And particularly, I think, is what is called for when we're bringing mindfulness to communication. Because we know we're trying, you know, we, and this also dovetails with my work as a lawyer. You know, we know that words are infinitely malleable and everybody, you know, when I use the word love, somebody else has a kind of radically different set of understandings about what that means and mm -hmm. just. So we're trying to kind of, you know, bring ourselves in the same room, so to speak, knowing that there are going to be ways that we're going to be holding these things differently. But that said, um, whenever we talk about public and social, we know we're, we're, we're talking about the way in which, irrespective of how we tend to think of ourselves and our most private moments and spaces, how the world thinks of us, how it is that when we go out into the world, we are seen by others and perceived by others, the social realm. And, um, you know, I studied social psychology in the graduate level at the University of Virginia. I was in a PhD program and switched into law. So I spent a lot of time, I, that is just to say, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, in a structured way and setting, you know, the 
public facing self and how we are met. Um, the notion of social identity, the identities that attach to us in the world that may or may not be the same as the identities we hold for ourselves. And so race falls within that conversation, comes up in that conversation, race and how it is that um, uh, the structures of our culture and our communities, the places where we're formed and trained and places where we find opportunities with others to, to you know, to apply our skills and to develop, develop and to thrive in the world, you know, all of these things in the United States have been formed in a culture that has legacies, um, as we've alluded to earlier in the conversation, mm -hmm. deeply committed to notions of race and structures of racism. You know, deeply committed, and not only race, obviously, but um, race is one aspect of our identities in the world. And so when I think about um, justice as what love looks like in public, we are in, in, in the public is in the United States. We are, I think, um, inevitably drawn to some kind of reflection on how it is that um, uh, whatever we, we do, whatever policies, whatever institutions we formulate might in some way consciously or unconsciously reflect some of the legacies of our history through which we identified those human beings who were entitled to justice and those who were not, right? So it invites mm -hmm. us kind of stepping back and thinking about how have we set up structures that embed um, notions of who's the proper object or subject, right? Who, who is this justice for? Mm -hmm. Who are these opportunities for? Who are these institutions for? And who are they kind of not for? Who are, who do we think of as less entitled to, you name it. Here's where we come into social justice more broadly. To me, I think of social justice as that broad question, inviting this broad question about how we're distributing resources for thriving. You know, like an injustice looking at the maldistribution of these resources necessary for thriving, for minimizing suffering, right? So when we socially in a project like law, you know, we're doing a lot of things, but part of what we're doing is setting up structures for the distribution of the resources necessary for thriving, whether it be, you know, resources around safety and protection in the event of injury, right? I teach personal injury law. I teach torts. So how, you know, what kind of injuries do we recognize as entitling someone to go to court? Who even gets to go to court? Traditionally in the United States, the entire system, the entire system at its founding was set up with a presumption that all of it was for only a portion of our society and those were white and originally white men mm -hmm. with right. So it, it'd be great to be in that category, but of course the country included a lot of other different types of folks. So today, when we think about um, meeting out justice through a system that was originally created with a tilt, as Toni Morrison and other teachers of mine will say, you know, it's a slant. It's slanted still, right? The legacies of that deep founding 
um, with a, you know, kind of ground, all the way through ground to the ground, to the roots, commitment to this system is for this group and not for these others. Mm-hmm. Um, how it is that we today try to, you know, approximate justice from, you know, through systems that actually weren't created to be open and accessible and inclusive of all of us is an ongoing challenge, I think. And so my work is in law has been about helping us, you know, find different ways of seeing the legacies of that history as they are still kind of um, subtly maybe showing up. And um, my work in mindfulness more generally is about helping us see the legacies of those histories as they may be showing up in us and in the certain places where we create um, opportunities. And so, yes, social justice then and racial justice, you know, race is an aspect of social justice. I often have said, you know, you can't have social justice without racial justice or you can't really have racial justice without social justice. They're interrelated because what we're looking at is um, how notions of race feature into are one of the aspects, if you will, that help structure the distribution of opportunity. And it's not the only one. Race intersects with all these other social dynamics, gender and sex orientation and class, Mm -hmm. right? We all know that we're formed in ways that when we go out into the world, we have opportunities that meet us and, you know, and, and, and limitations. You know, and the world, we didn't create all of these things, and yet we have agency. And so, this kind of complex holding and being with this sort of stew that we find ourselves in is where I think mindfulness can be of a support. But yeah, so racial justice and social justice are, and again, social justice maybe being the broader category that includes thinking about race, thinking about gender, thinking about other forms of class Mm -hmm. that we as socially embodied beings when we enter into the world we are um we are often prejudged right all of us have biases and systems that we meet have biases that are kind of maybe for us and not so for us to varying degrees that we that we're navigating and so these questions are about, the questions of justice are about how might we bring more awareness to the ways that we might be unintentionally creating injustice, making it harder for some people to thrive than others. Yeah, so the unintentional piece uh, actually leads me to my next question for you. As, as a white man, you, you, talk, you talk about how people relate to one another in ways that unintentionally contribute to racism. Um, as a white man, as a man, yeah. as a white person, mm-hmm. maybe those two together, mm-hmm. um, how would you recommend people become, <clears throat> excuse me, more aware of this unintentional contribution to racism? And then how uh, would you recommend we ultimately stop it. <laughs> I love, and my heart is kind of really um, touched by your by the question, but also, and I don't mean to laugh at, or I'm laughing with us in humanity, right? The part of us that wants to stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to stop it too. And, um, you know, let's be serious about this. 
stopping it is not easy because um, it's, you know, um, well, let's just reflect first on the first part. How do we become more aware and how do we work with it? This is how I think of it. You know, it's working with um, whatever our particular social characteristics, you know, becoming more aware of what this feels like, tastes like, looks like, the temptations to um, fixate or um, right to attach to certain aspects of what it feels like to be in this body versus that body, right? So we're, we're bringing um, awareness to the ways in which we form a sense of self. And we know that mindfulness can help, help us with that. Mm -hmm. Noticing the ways that we can um, you know, kind of puff up a little bit the sense of who we are and get kind of attached to a certain way of thinking about who we are and certain habits, conditions, and patterns, right? This is what mindfulness helps us to look at. And so we're often drawn to think about the habits we might have about, well, like sometimes you see, um, you know, mindfulness helping us look at from our habits of thought or emotion, right? So deepening emotional intelligence. Um, the question we might start to bring when we start to look more at the social dynamics of our experience and how we hold them is like, what are some of the um, emotional aspects that arise for me around the way I'm identified socially? That's just one kind of question mm -hmm. that might be a part of quote unquote how we would work with these things. We begin to be curious about. Just be curious about how we are um, in some ways attached to, maybe subtly, um, a, a notion of ourselves that partakes in ideas of race, of gender, of a certain kind of class background. And we begin to be curious about um, the subtle aspects, right? Looking underneath the obvious to the sensations in the body that come up when these aspects of who we are might be being met. Um, maybe it's our way in which we are um, drawn to seeing ourselves as, as women, you know, or as, as, as you know, as um, a person of a certain class background. Race is in there too. Mm -hmm is always in there too, especially in this country. And so just being more curious, what does that mean, for example? You know, so how is it that I um, construct a sense of myself that in some way has in there some attachment to some quality that is about not just race, but the preferences perhaps in the, you know, because you have to start to be curious about what is the, what are the forms and what are the forms and functions of race? What, what, you know, is it just like hair color? Like really meaning nothing more than eye color or hair color? Or has it um, actually been part and parcel of slotting, again, each of us into places and spaces of opportunity, protectedness, privilege, or the opposite of that? Mm -hmm. You know, what have we been drawn to do to subtly kind of attached to those ways of being treated 
that flow from these identities. You know, so, you know, given that legacy that I refer to of um, privileging, if you will, whites and men, the question is, um, once we know that that's part of the history, and we all know that that's part of our history. So, well, first question is, you know, what comes up when that is, when we're reminded of that? What comes up when we suspect there might be some legacies of that showing up in how we're met when we go through immigration and customs? and how we're met when we go and apply for a job, and how we're met when we show up at a place to look for a home in this neighborhood versus that neighborhood. So it's really about kind of slowing down and being curious about the sensations, thoughts, and emotions that kind of travel with some racial content, content and contact. Things that we know something about that we just often aren't given space does any of this make any sense, John? Or? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. This, yeah. I, and I want to, I want to talk about the emotional intelligence there. Um, specifically, I, I wanted to hit on a, an article that you recently wrote uh, for Mindful. Uh, in, in it, you mentioned where one of your students stood up and mentioned that he was going to write his paper on on the Rodney King beating and how he felt that Rodney King deserved what he got. I wanna talk about the emotional intelligence you displayed in your response and, and then what it is you ultimately uncovered in your discussions. I, I, think, I think your student was Dan, or at least that's what you named him in the, in the article. Uh, can you talk about that? Oh yeah, yeah. So I'll try to do it like a brief here. Um, so yeah, that was one of those moments. And you know, I invite all of us who are listening, listening here, if you haven't already, be thinking about those moments in our own lives where something has happened that you know has some racial content. Mm -hmm. and gotten us triggered one way or another, right? Either obviously where we've said something and it's been responded to or someone else has and we're feeling ourselves reactive to it. That's the moment that that kind of gives you a sense, whatever you're feeling in your body, that's kind of a sense of what I was feeling. Um, in that moment when I, yes, um, in this setting, it was a, a law school class setting um, where we were talking, students were talking about papers for a seminar, you know, that I was teaching on race and law. And they were given to explore a topic and then present on it. And I was to help them with that project. And the students were going around the table and saying their topics. And this one student, um, who I should say, you know, because I think it, you know, this is what we become more comfortable doing, you know, naming these identities, if you will. And again, I, I want to say that part of the project is to hold these identities somewhat lightly and porously, because we know these are not who, all of who we are. <laughs> Let's just say that explicitly. <laughs> you know, how we're met in the world is not really in any in a certain sense is not who we are at all we might say but on the other hand it sort of is so naming it becomes part of and kind of working with it as you're doing john and saying you know as a person who i say racialized as white gendered in a way as male because it could be otherwise you know we could be living a culture it could be thought differently the names could be different and the experiences around that could be different so we're socialized to think of ourselves and to act in ways that um, make it cognizable, this idea of race, 
to us and to each other in ways that we often haven't articulated. Mm -hmm. It helps to just talk about uh, more to your first, back to your first question in a way, even as I come back to the Dan incident. It helps, I think, for us to just create more spaces where we can just talk about these aspects of our experience. Because silencing around it is part of how we keep ourselves stuck in loops of repetition around this. Right. Even if we just can be create more language, become more comfortable with different ways of languaging this and recognizing that we're not, you know, putting ourselves in boxes necessarily. We're just talking about the boxes that are out there and talking about how we're navigating a world in which they're out there. And we, you know, so this to me becomes a more lively, creative, you know, way of being engaged around this that doesn't have to be so fraught with, you know, just the suffering of it. There's a certain kind of joy that I think that comes with being more, feeling more capable, frankly, of talking about this, which is around us all the time. And so in that moment though, I didn't necessarily feel a lot of joy. <laughs> I was feeling like, holy, I don't know what this particular <laughs> statement was so challenging because it was, yeah, I'm gonna write about the Rodney King beating from the perspective that it was not racist, he deserved the beating, full stop, you know. And in me, I was immediately brought back to the images of the video. And I can say the video, and I suspect that many people, if not all people, but many of us um, from the United States and who were of age um, in the early 90s, this happened in 1992. I was a law student at the time that a video surfaced, which was one of the early videos showing an altercation between police and a black man that uh, was shocking for a lot of people in the way in which it seemed to look, it seemed, seemed for me, for example, to look like a lot of brutality against a man who was down on the ground. And, um, you know, although the, the, police officers were not all white. They were not at all all white racialized. There was a racial dynamic to it that, um, that for me was painful to witness. And so, and, and called for, I felt, and I think many of us in this country have felt, it's called for a deep reckoning. What's going on between policing and, and black men? We've learned a lot since that, that video came out. We've learned about systemic, you know, the over incarceration of brown and black people. Um, we've learned about, you know, the over policing of brown and black people, overcharging. We've just learned. We're still learning, I think. But so when he said that in that class, I would just say as a human being in that moment, I was just feeling a little bit flooded with like reactivity. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, this is an oversimplification and it's a way of seeing this that I'm reacting to because I disagree. <laughs> right. I have a feeling about this that's different. And um, so for me, it was an, um, a, a, a kind of a momentary a situation where I realized that my, um, my reactions uh, were, were strong, and yet they weren't necessarily, um, let's say, for prime time. Like it wasn't for me to just let those reactions kind of flow out of me into that classroom spaces. That right. was skillful, I knew. <laughs> so I was really in that moment, and this was, you know, 2000, in the mid 2000s, 
already starting to draw on my own mindfulness practice to be able to notice, all right, this is the arising of anger, sadness, rage maybe to some degree, even momentarily, um, fear or uncertainty, where is this going? The sense of loss of control, maybe that ego wanting to be like, okay, I'm the professor here, I kind of know what, I have a general sense of the kind of things we're gonna talk about, boom, I have no idea what's, you know, where this is coming from or where it might go. So maybe a sense of my identity as the professor in charge being threatened. So this is just a kind of a thumbnail sketch of the range of the flood of different kinds, <laughs> rainbow of emotions that came up in that one, you know, maybe a second or two right there. And fortunately, I, I had a kind of a conscious sense of how my mindfulness practices could support me right then and there that I could um, not just go with whatever was coming, the first thoughts and the reactive way of, you know, of meeting this, I could instead sense into pause long enough to notice these emotions and this state of being kind of triggered. Kind of um, it, what uh, Daniel Goldman in his beautiful book, Emotional Intelligence and all the work that's flowed out of the research that went into by others that he helped report on. And since then, right, we've learned so much about how we can be hijacked emotionally, how the brain and the neurobiological dynamics of that are very real. Mm -hmm. And that mindfulness can help support us in mastering the hijacking, the flooding, and regulating, down-regulating back to a place of choice about how to respond. And so that is what I, you know, found myself, I can talk about it now, what it felt like was breathing, feeling the ground beneath me, noticing the emotions and then maybe putting, noting anger, rage, discomfort, fear, uncertainty, and realizing that I could at a minimum just pause. I didn't have to react right away. Um, and I could choose from that place a little bit more skillful kind of response and continue to lean into awareness practices to support me on what I came to see and I think of as part of my works, you know, the message that continues from my work from that moment and other moments. This is ongoing work for us. You know, we are, as I said, we've inherited a lot in this country. Um, this Dan... Uh, meant to say, and I didn't say, you know, he was racialized Asian American, let's say, from an Asian heritage background. And so, if you know anything about the Rodney King incident in context, we know that part of what ended up happening was um, a lot of um, Black Asian distress in the Los Angeles context where the beating took place bubbled up to the surface. Mm -hmm. Communities, Korean American, Chinese American, Black, Latino, White, in that context, um, already uh, trained and, and conditioned to sort of be at, ill at ease with each other, despite the fact that we are post-civil rights and we want to feel like we're be, you know, we're all in this together and we are, you know, can turn together towards some sort of new world or democratic agenda or whatever it is. 
we still live in racialized, segregated bodies. And so, so much was coming up um, for me and for him, for Dan, I later learned. And so what I was able to do um, in that moment that lasted for the whole semester was develop a way of being with Dan in this conversation, one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes with the whole class at other times, that was grounded in my own awareness practice and in gently offering a kind of a bridge, a uh, kind of way of being with him as he grappled with what was being uh, revealed in his experience. That was supported by my illness. So some of it was explicit, but a lot of it was just the way I was holding space for us to work together with these difficult aspects of our experience. Sure. Yeah, and so that's really what I was describing in that essay that you were Yeah, I, I loved it. And, and that all happened in just a matter of seconds that you were able to realize what you were feeling, um, not be hijacked, and then, and then have some fairly deep conversations with Dan afterward that were productive for the two of you, um, productive and healing, I, I would say. So it's pretty powerful what mindfulness can do. Even I mean, that was just one, one or two seconds. And how, how that could have gone 180 out if you had lost control and let your emotions get the better of you. Uh, so it's a pretty powerful example of how mindfulness can help to develop that emotional intelligence. And with that emotional intelligence, so many other beautiful things can come from it. Uh, so intelligence yes yes definitely social intelligence and social engagement around mind. right well Rhonda uh, we're, we're at about uh, an hour and ten minutes or so into into the interview and I know we only booked about a, an hour so I'm already ten minutes past and I could go on forever but I'll, I'll ask you just a few more questions and then we'll wrap it up um, we talked about your personal practice and your staying disciplined and you talked about your grandmother and how she had stayed disciplined to her morning routine. How do you personally practice and how do you stick to it? Well, at this point, I think it sort of sticks with me in that, you know, um, so I practice, I do sitting meditations um, almost every day, um, often twice a day. Um, and so I, I sit, I have a little, a special area where I have, a, you know, um, where I've set it up for, for my practice and where, you know, given the length of time that I've been sitting there and the associations I have with it, it kind of has a, a little bit of a calming effect. Um, it, you know, it kind of holds me in the practice if I just kind of sit myself in that on my, my little booth cushion, my little oasis, my little approximation of the ocean, if you will. <laughs> the little cushion and the little little, you know, padding underneath it. You know, and I have images and books around me that support me. I have a, 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 uh, a, a I don't want to call it a poster, but a graphic, uh, which has a, 
a, um, a sutra, a, uh, uh, the heart sutra, right? A teaching, uh, a Buddhist teaching, um, which for me also is a deep support for staying with the commitment to practice. Um, so, so I think I have made a commitment then to have place uh, uh, set aside to support me, a place where I can go. Um, I've set it up in a place where I can't miss it. <laughs> it's not off somewhere. It's, uh, it's actually very close to where, um, you know, I get ready for the day. You know, it's in a bedroom space. It's, you know, it's near a bathroom, right? It's, it's in a place where I um, can uh, get up early in the day, settle into it, and then go on to do the things that I need to do to prepare myself for the rest of the day. And similarly, it's in a place that I go to for getting ready for bed. <laughs> so for that reason, um, I'm often sitting there twice a day, it calling to me in a certain way. Nice. As a but I also, um, you know, do walking meditations. Um, I practice a kind of, right now during the pandemic, I'm doing a kind of walking and seeing practice where I look for things that bring me joy, that remind me of life and growing, right? So I, I absolutely am a child that, uh, that gets energy from being reminded of the natural world. And so I bring awareness to aspects of the natural world on a regular basis um, as well. Nice. So for, I mean, for me now, practice is everywhere. You know, it's in this conversation. Um, and it is in, so it's in those more formal uh, times that I set aside, but it's also in these informal ways of being with our lives. Beautiful. And hopefully our, our listeners can, can get something from that. Uh, and, and I know I did. Uh, I need to set my practicing area up where I can bump into it, you know, first thing in the morning. But I'm, uh, I think I may have told you this right before we hit record. Uh, we just moved into an RV. So having any space for anything is tough. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. The whole RV must be your right. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, Rhonda, what have we not uh, spoken about today that you want uh, the listeners to, to hear? Uh, thank you. Well, I would just um, say we pretty much, I mean, I really didn't, didn't have a specific agenda here, but I think we touched on a lot of what's alive for me right now. Um, and I would just offer a sense of um, appreciation to you, um, appreciation for the work that you're doing um, through these podcasts and to all those who have taken time out to listen. Um, I think in this moment, we are radically more aware of our interconnectedness. And that, you know, again, these ways, things that we've been talking about, the ways we've been socially trained to think of ourselves, are trainings and conditionings. They are, as I've already said, in some ways, explicitly and implicitly, not all of who we are, maybe in a certain sense, not who we are at all. So um, I think the the deep teaching that I'm exploring um, is about, you know, sort of being with complexity, you know, knowing that, yes, there are these aspects of our lived experience that are going to be with us, 
we have histories, heritages, ways that people are gonna meet us, ways that we're gonna meet people in the social realm. They're gonna be there. And yet, might we find new ways of relating to ourselves, to each other? Might we more rightly kind of, um, or more, um, you know, in more life-affirming ways, you know, support each other in this journey. It feels like a journey kind of like we're walking each other home. And so um, thank you, John, well, for this. Thank, thank you, Rhonda. I very much appreciate uh, this, this episode. I very much appreciate everything you've shared with us today. Uh, I know it will be enlightening, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, as I've started to get into your book, how enlightening that has been for me. And I know that this will be enlightening to our, our listeners. If our listeners wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to uh, find out more about you or get a hold of you? Well, you can find me, I'm, you know, I'm all out there on the socials. <laughs> so I'm on Facebook and I'm a lot, I kind of, you know, for good or ill, I, I enjoy the community actually, uh, that I have sort of, that I'm a participant in uh, through Facebook. So you can find me there. I have a, a website, of course. You can find me at rondabmcgee.com and on Twitter, and you can email me. You can find me um, through the University of San Francisco School of Law website, where I'm still a regular tenured law professor on top of everything else. <laughs> so I'm easy to find, and I'd love to hear from uh, any of you who are listening now, and any questions come up, any reflections. Um, I consider myself to be a co-journeyer on the path, as I say, and I'm just grateful to be walking this stretch of the way with, with you all in this moment. And we are grateful to be on that path with you, Rhonda. So thank you for, again, for coming on the show. Thank you for making some time. And thank you for everything that you've shared. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful being with you, and I certainly appreciate it. Thank you, and be well to all the veterans. Thank you so much for all that you are, all that you do, all that you have sacrificed, and all that you have done to help make us all safer. Um, Thank you for the, that support, Rhonda. I very much appreciate it. Until we talk again, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. You too. For our listeners, thanks for listening to our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends and family. And remember, listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives. 